you got your Bibles, let's open up to, uh, to Isaiah 49 as we continue our walk through the book of Isaiah. You know, as we, as we think about it, if you've been following along, if you've been listening to the sermons or experiencing the sermons on Sunday morning, we, we start to see a pattern in Isaiah. And, and Isaiah is trying to get the people, he's trying to get Israel to look past their present, past all the things that are happening in their lives that are, that are causing them concern, and he's trying to get them to look towards the future. Something, something that is much greater is going to happen. All these immediate problems seem to be overshadowing their lives, and we can understand that today. You know, we have issues in our lives. If you live in this world, you're going to see a lot of problems in the economy. I'll, you know, every time I turn around, there's another bank that's failing. Of course, I'm a conspiracy theorist because I say it's all planned. It's all a ploy. I don't think there's a human behind it. I think there's a much deeper evil behind it. But obviously we can get concerned about things and, and things seem to be weighing on us heavily in our lives. You know, when Hezekiah had the Assyrians on his doorstep and he's all worried, Isaiah comes to him and says, listen, you need to calm down. God's got this. He's going to take care of it. Just relax. And, he, and as Hezekiah ends up repenting and and ends up God ends up killing a numerous number of the Assyrians. Isaiah also prophesied, though, that uh, you know Israel would go into captivity with Babylon. But even greater than that is the fact that he tried to get them to look past those things that were going to happen and to look towards the one that was coming who would make everything right. The one who was going to save them as a people. Their Redeemer. Their Messiah. Now, Again, as you go through it, you'll notice he talks about Cyrus, and some people might think, well, that Cyrus was the one. Cyrus was their redeemer because he allowed them to come back from captivity in Babylon. And, no, Cyrus is just a foreshadowing of the Messiah who was to come. And you find that throughout Scripture, especially in prophecy, that God will give you a picture of something, and that's not what's really going to happen in the end. It's not, it's not it's the thing that's out there that we can't see, but it's a foreshadowing, a, a, almost like a, a clip. You know, you go to see a movie, you see the trailer, right? It gives you an idea of what's in the movie. Well, this is what God was doing. He's using Cyrus to show them, I'm going to save you. I've got you. I've got this. Trust me. He does the same thing for us today. So now we're going to come in this, to this point where God's actually in this book, God is looking past even Israel. He's looking past what they're going through. It's, I call it a new beginning. Now, as we read this, we begin to read this, we might think that Isaiah is talking about himself in these verses, but it, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and we'll see that in a moment. But what we're going to see is, is way beyond anything that Isaiah is going to be able to claim for himself. You know, we boast about a lot of things, about what we know and what we do. But Isaiah is not boasting here. This is not him he's talking about. He's talking about someone else. But who? Some people say he'll be talking about the nation. But we're going to see that who he's talking about is going to save them. And how can a nation save itself? It cannot. It only makes sense that this chapter is going to be talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of Mary, the Son of God. So we can get insight. We can kind of have a look into this conversation that God the Father and God the Son is having. So let's look at verse 1 of Isaiah 49. 
So think, as we're reading this, think about this. this is, I believe this is God talking to Christ. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention. You peoples from afar, the Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. We first get Jesus actually calling out to the coastlands, calling out to those beyond the borders of Israel. They had a very you know, small view of the world. You know, Paul ultimately will think that Tarshish, which was on the other side, on the edge of Spain, was the end of the world. We know it was much bigger than that. So did God. So God is calling to the coast, Jesus is calling to the coastlands, far beyond the borders, the nations. See, from the very beginning of time, it has always been God's plan to choose Israel as his people and to bring the Gentiles, all of us, into that family. That has been his plan from the start. It hasn't changed. He wants to bring the Gentiles under his wing. Now, always from the start, a Gentile could become a Jew. You become a Jew by following Jewish principles and, and becoming, for men, becoming circumcised and, 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 and actually converting to Judaism. Then you're one of God's people. You're no different than somebody who was born Jewish. That was a way you could do it. But what now God is going to do, he's going to do something new. He's going to be, do something new. And that new thing he's doing is Jesus Christ. Now, Normally when we, we are going to have children, or when we adopt, as Beth and I did, you know, we, we kind of discuss what the name is. You've all, you parents have had discussions with your husbands about, what are we going to name this child? It's always fun as a child to go back and ask your parents, what were, you, what were the names you were thinking of? And th- you, sometimes you think, I am so glad you didn't make me that name. <laughs> right? But see, that's not what happens with Jesus. It is Yahweh who chooses his name. It is his true father, God, who chose the name of Christ. And God tells tells Mary and Joseph what they will name that baby that's in Mary's tummy. (laughs) In Matthew 121, says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name. This is God talking to Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And I've said this to you before. Jesus is actually in Hebrew, um, Yeshua. Joshua. That's what we call it, Joshua. Joshua means he will save his people. God saves is actually what it means. Yeshua. So Jesus' actual name is Yeshua in Hebrew. So from the start, from the very fact that his name means that God saves or he will save his people, it it was God had put into Jesus what his purpose was. He's being born in this world to save his people, the Jews, from their sins. And we also know that just as Joshua did, he will save his people with the sword, but not the sword that they think. Because here in verse 2 of of Isaiah 49, it says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hands he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. 
See, it, it was not a sword of conquest, a, a metal sword that, 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 you, you, that you strap to your hip and you yield whenever, you know, wield whenever you want to fight. That's how David conquered. That's how Joshua conquered. That's how Caleb conquered. That's how the Israelites took the promised land. But that is not the way Christ is going to conquer the world. He's going to conquer it with the sword of his mouth. See, the Jews were looking for a conqueror with a sword who was going to come and throw Rome out of Israel. But the sword that Jesus would use would be his words. Matthew 10, this is something Jesus says in Matthew 10, 34. He says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. We, we think Jesus comes and everything should be peaceful and lovely and unicorns and rainbows. and No. I've not come to bring peace. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Today, we have a lot of division in this world. We have a lot of division still within families caused by what happened in 2020, that word, that, that disease that shall not be named, that virus that shall not be named. If I did, they'd pop me off of YouTube. It's divided people. Religion divides people. You want you talk, uh, <laughs> there's certain things you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table. Religion is one of them. Why not? Because it divides Jesus came. It's going to divide. But see, the thing also in this verse is just interesting is that when God did not, you know, just reveal in the Old Testament what was he was going to do. He, he, he put pieces here and he put pieces over here. He hid Christ in the Old Testament. Little by little, the prophets were saying these things. And starting all the way back in Genesis with the, the curse of the serpent, and then shrouded throughout the Old Testament prophecy, we see God's plan. We have, you know, hindsight's always 2020. I mean, you always have 2020 vision when you look back at what's going on. That's we here today can look back and see that's what God was doing. And that's what God continues to do. <clears throat> As I stated before, God had good reason for not revealing in Scripture one place. Where he was, what his plan was going to be. Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that none of the rulers of this age, which when he says that, he doesn't mean human rulers. He means the rulers in the heavenly realms. He means the fallen sons of God, the, the fallen angels. If they knew what Christ was going to do, they never would have influenced people to kill him. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So that's what God is doing. And so these first two verses is Jesus talking about what God has done, the Messiah, saying what God is doing. But then we come to a very difficult verse in verse 3. He says, He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now, I thought his name was Jesus, right? So why is he being called Israel? Is it Jesus? Is it Israel? Jesus is never called Israel in any of the Gospels. None. And yet here in Isaiah, that's who's talking about. That's what he's talking about. He says, Israel, you are my servant. But see, we have to understand that 
what God's purpose was for Israel. Why did God choose Israel? At the, at the Tower of Babel, right after the Tower of Babel, God chooses Israel as his people. Gives the other nations to the, to the sons of God. You can look it up. It's in Scripture. If we go back to Egypt before the Exodus, here's what God told Moses. Because he says in Exodus 4.22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Now, wait a minute. I thought Jesus was the only begotten son, which is an incorrect term. That we, it's been translated incorrectly. It's not only begotten. does not mean that he's the only one that's been created. Because we know there are other sons of God. And we know we can be sons and daughters of God. Only begotten actually means unique. But here it says that Israel is my firstborn son. Here's what Paul tells the church in Colossae, in, in Colossians 1.15. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Before everything happened, Jesus was. He's always been. He is God. He, there was, he was not created. He's always been, just as the Father has always been, as the Holy Spirit has always been. He is the firstborn of all creation. But there seems to be, so there seems to be this connection between Israel and Jesus. And I want you to see it. If we go to the book of Hosea, and Hosea, the prophet Hosea says, when Israel, in 11.1, says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Well, obviously, if we read that in today, remember, hindsight's 20.20. So what do we know? Where was the one time in history where God called Israel out of Egypt? After, it's the Exodus, right? After being in slavery. We think he's talking about Egypt. But if we go to Matthew and we read what it says in Matthew 2.15, it says, and he's talking about Joseph, when Joseph and Mary had had Jesus, and then they find out that Herod is going to try to kill the baby. They find that Joseph sees that in a dream. They leave and they go to Egypt. And it says that he remain, they remained there until the death of Herod. So Jesus, Mary, and Joseph are in Egypt until Herod dies. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now wait a minute. I thought that was fulfilled back here. When, when we think about it, it was fulfilled back when Exodus, during the Exodus when Israel was called out of Egypt. It's like, no. It's a double fulfillment. It's a foreshadowing of what's something that's going to happen in the life of Christ. So you see the connection. Jesus and Israel have a huge connection here. So Matthew is saying that Jesus, when he was a child, and his parents took him to Egypt, and then they came back to Israel, is fulfilling Hosea. I believe that, I believe that Jesus is the personification of what Israel was supposed to be. Jesus perfectly obeyed his father. He perfectly followed the law of Moses. He was the perfection that Israel was not. Israel's purpose was to be a light to the nations. Remember, when, again, I, and I've said this before, and I, I repeat myself because I think this is so important. When Jesus has turned the tables over in the, in the temple, and he's, he's 
taking the money changers and he's throwing their money and he's whipping the animals and getting them out of the temple. He says, my father's house was to be a house of prayer for the nations. And you've made it a den of thieves. The house, the temple was not just for Israel. It was for the nations. They were supposed to show people what, what it was like to be people of God. So much so that what? Everybody would want to be Jewish. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to show this world how wonderful it is to be a child of God and to be walking in faith that they want what we have. But I'm afraid that most of the time we want that they have and we show them that we can have the same thing that they have. We need to be different. That's a whole other sermon. Jesus came to do what Israel failed to do, to be the light to the world. But the time of the crucifixion, it sure didn't look like it. It looked like he had failed. In verse 4 of, of Isaiah 49, it says, But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. I mean, he was nailed to a cross. Is that success? In, in our eyes, no, that's not success. That's failure. I'm sure the Romans were thinking, well, we got, we got that one. And the Jewish leaders were like, oh, we, we nipped that one in the bud. Not knowing that's exactly what God wanted them to do. And they'll find out later they didn't because the disciples keep going. It's easy to look at the cross as a failure. It's understandable that we get discouraged when ministry doesn't happen the way we think it should. Or when we see ministry happening the way the world thinks it should, what we, the world calls success, and we get, why aren't we getting that? Why, why is my life so difficult? And, and they, theirs isn't, and they're not believers. Because the problem is that you and I, as humans, we seem to play the short game. You know what the short game is? The short game is, I'm going to do what I need to do for tomorrow. But what does God do? God plays the long game. God says, I'm going to do what's good for eternity. And it's not always what we think is good for the short term. We suffer today because we have glory in the future. Verse 5 says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. When Jesus breathed his last breath, he committed his spirit to the Father. And what did God do when that happened? He fulfilled Psalm 110. And this is what Psalm 110 says. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He fulfilled that. Jesus suffered and died a horrible death so that he could sit at the right hand of God, which is the place of honor. And God's going to make his enemies the footstool, his footstool. God took what looked like a fair failure and he spent the last 20 centuries bringing people to faith in Yahweh through the sacrifice and death of Jesus Christ. That's how it happens. Just think about that. If, if the cross hadn't happened, if we did not have salvation, we wouldn't have Christ. You and I would be lost. Because no, there's no other way. We would have been lost. 
The long game would have been we were going to spend eternity separated from God. But a life that may be difficult now that leads to an eternity with our Father and Christ face to face, that's the long game. And that's the long game that Jesus and Yahweh always play. They always have a purpose in mind. And what's his purpose? Verses 6 to 7, Isaiah 49 says, he says, it is, is it too light of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob? This is, this is God the Father talking to God the Son. Is it, is it too light? Is, is, that, is that too small for you to just you know, save Israel? And to bring back the pres- and preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light to the nations. He's saying, that might be too small, but you know what? I'm going to do something even greater. I'm going to call the whole world and see if they answer. I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see, you shall see and arise Princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. See, Jesus could have come to save the Jews only. I mean, they're God's chosen people. They still are God's chosen people. They still have certain rights. We'll talk, at the end of this, I'm going to talk briefly about covenants, and I'll, I'll briefly touch on that. God could have just said, I'm only going to save the Jews, and all the Gentiles... I'm not going to say it, it just popped in my head. All the Gentiles will be separated from me forever in hell. And he would have been just in doing that. There would have been nothing, there's no injustice there because that's what we deserve. But he didn't do that. He didn't just stop at the walls of Jerusalem or at the borders of Israel. He says, you're going to be a light to the nations, to all. He wants his glory to spread all the way to the end of the earth. We know that in Revelation, we know that what's going to happen is it's going to happen actually in, in, in the, on the um, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you know, they ask, when will this going to happen? Well, when the gospel gets spread all the way, on all languages, no. When they hear the gospel, then it will be time. He wants his word to go to the ends of the earth. That's why we send missionaries. That's why we have missionaries in Uruguay. Why we have missionaries in Russia. Why we have missionaries here. Why we have missionaries in Eastern Europe. It's because we need to spread the gospel to the whole world. But at the same time, I need to spread the gospel to the universe that lives right next door to me. Because what good is if I spread it to the end of the earth and I don't spread it to those that are around me? God's plan is for all to hear the gospel and have an opportunity, because he's he's about free will, to be redeemed. So Jesus is doing, he's a light to the Gentiles that the Israelites were supposed to be. But everyone will not so easily bow and give glory to their Savior. The name of Jesus is deeply despised and abhorred today in our society. It's getting worse. It's getting much worse. Jesus told us that because we believe in him, we too will be despised. In Matthew 10, he says, And you will be hated by all, the na- all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But even that, it's interesting because even though there will be many who will not believe, in the end, everyone will bow. 
So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But it'll be too late for them. This is not a salvation time. This is not a time when they finally believe. They will have no choice but to admit, we were wrong, Jesus is Lord, but it's not going to save them. But there is a day of salvation coming. Isaiah 49.8 says, Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to, uh, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out. So those who are in darkness appear. They shall feed along the ways on all bare heights, shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them by the springs of water, will guide them. This is God calling the nations, calling us back to God. And those of us who go back to God, this is talking about what we will do. And it may be now, we may feel that in our lives, we still have trouble all around us, but in our hearts, we know we're in pastures, God's taking care of us. It's also in the end, when we're with him, the same thing will happen. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them by springs of water, will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. I believe in Scripture, in other places of Scripture, talks about the fact that the mountains will be leveled, and the highest mountain will be Zion in Jerusalem. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north, and from the west, and these from the land of Zion. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Promise. God keeps his promises. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. See, God is looking at the liberation, or Isaiah is looking at the liberation of the people by Cyrus. That's what he sees. He can't see past that. But this is also a foreshadow of the great liberation that's for all of us who trust in Christ for our salvation. There's nothing better than Christ. And for those who don't know Christ, who have not trusted him, the time is now. It's always time. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, For he says, In favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. It's reflecting back to Isaiah. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now. God is a God of covenants. Formal agreements that we can put our trust in, that God will never break, even though we struggle and we break them ourselves. God, and I talked about this on Thursday night. We had a prayer service. It was the National Day of Prayer. We did some praying for, the, for multiple things. Well, I talked about the fact that God is a God of covenants. He makes promises. God never breaks his promise. There are seven covenants that he has in Scripture. You and I are living under the new covenant today. That if you believe in Christ, confess your sins, you are saved. That's the promise. Some of the covenants are unconditional. Israel has three unconditional covenants. No matter what they do, they're still going to get the land. But there are some covenants, some of them that are conditional. That if they don't do this, they're going to lose it. Some things. It's, it's just what God does. But God always keeps his covenant. I was in, you know, we were in Williamsburg. 
and very historic, and we went to Jamestown, the first settlement in the United States. And most people don't know this, but they did not actually land in Jamestown first. When they first landed, they landed out by what's now Virginia Beach. They came ashore, and they put a cross up, and they made a covenant, saying that this nation shall be a nation for God. Then they got back on the boat, and they went up the James River, and they landed at Jamestown. Now, a lot of people don't like covenants. They don't like the idea of covenants. If you live in certain neighborhoods, you have a covenant. You have to obey the rules. So I thought, you know, what happens if, what is a covenant that we have? That we all live under, but we just don't realize it. So I came up with, and this is kind of based on what they had on Jamestown. So I came up with a covenant for this church. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set it back there. And you're more than w- w- welcome to sign it. I have many signatures on here already from Thursday night. I'm not going to pull it out in, in five years and say, oh, look, you're not keeping your part. I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is if you sign it, I'll give you a copy of it. I'll scan it, give it to you. This is between you and God. And believe me, there's nothing in here that we're already not supposed to be doing. But I think putting it down on paper kind of puts it in our face. Saying, you, if you're a believer in Christ, you're supposed to be living this way. So let me read it to you real quick, and I'll leave, then I'll leave it out there for you to sign. <clears throat> it says, We do hereby dedicate this church and ourselves to live lives that reflect our faithful relationship with Jesus Christ and to reach the people within our community and to the farthest shores with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to raise up godly generations after us and with these generations take the kingdom of God to all the ends of the earth. May this covenant of dedication remain to all generations as long as this earth, shall, this earth remains. May all those who see this cross, which is the one right here, remember that we, what we have done here, and may those who come here to worship with us join us in this covenant. That's all it says. So I will leave that out there. You're more than welcome to sign it. Or not. No judgment. Like I said, it's just going to, I'm going to make copies and it's going to go in the file and I'll pull it out for me to remind me what I've promised. So when I'm not living that, I can say, I, I got to go back to that. I got to go back to living the life I'm supposed to in Christ. So that'll be out there. If any questions about it, please ask me. But God is a God of covenants. And we break them. We break them all the time. He doesn't. But God knows that we're weak in our faith, and he, he knows that we need assurances that will help us keep the covenants that he's given to us. And he does that in, in Christ. When we take communion later, we remember that Jesus made a new covenant with us through the shedding of his blood. Think of it as a blood oath. Never to be broken. God will never forsake us. But God is doing something new. Something constructive. And lasting in our messy human existence and anyone can be part of it. Anybody can be part of the new covenant if they just believe. And God loves to, he longs to show us how kind he is and how much he loves us. And he does that through Jesus Christ. And because of God's kindness and salvation provided through Christ, he calls us to celebrate. He calls for a celebration through all of creation. Look at verse 14, Isaiah 49. It says, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Israel's saying, God doesn't love us anymore when it's them that broke the covenant, not him. And this is what God says. Can a woman forget her nursing child 
that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. No parent forgets their child. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Hmm, I find that interesting because that's where, not necessarily here, but where Christ was crucified. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste, your destroyers, and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see... They all gather, they come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. And those who swallowed you will be far away. The children of your bereavement will say, will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me, make room for me to dwell in. God's going to call people. They're going to want to come. That reminds me of, you know, wide is the gate that leads to destruction, narrow is the way that leads to Christ. We're going to let people in to that narrow way. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone, and from where have these come? God cannot forget his people. He cannot forget his children. Isaiah is using this analogy of of the love of a mother, probably the greatest love there is. We'll talk about that next week. Short of the love of God on earth. It is the greatest human love, and God will not forget you. No matter how it seems that life is tearing you apart and you think God has forsaken me, no, he has not. He's there with you. He's helping you. Think what would happen if you were going through things without him how difficult it would be. Now there are some, obviously some mothers who may neglect or selfishly forget their children, but not God. He remembers every person he created. Every child that he wove together in their mother's womb, he remembers them, he knows them, he calls them, he seeks them each and every day of their lives. His desire is that they return to him. He wants, But he wants them to do it willingly. He can force them to do it. Many of the exiles did return to Babylon. 42,000 under Ezra and Nehemiah. But see, God's picture is much bigger than 42,000 Israelites returning to Jerusalem. Because remember, Jesus is the light to the Gentiles. So God goes on, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise up my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can they pray? Can the prey be taken away from the mighty? Or the captives of the tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. Satan wants nothing more than to hold on to us and keep us away from God, and he says, no, you can't. God is much stronger. See, sometimes we get this idea that there's this battle between good and evil, and that evil is just as much as powerful as good. That's a lie. That's the lie that Satan tells us. God is a billion times more powerful than Satan. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. Satan has no power over you if you're a believer. Now, he can mess around around you and cause you trouble around you, 
but he can't hurt you unless God allows it. And most of the time, God doesn't allow it. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. See, as the gospel spreads more and more throughout the world, Gentiles are returning to God, becoming Jews spiritually. And in the end, we will see the salvation coming through the Jews, and we will be spiritually grafted in to the family of God. But there's going to be some who resist, as always. We see this in verse 24. They'll use their positions of authority to try to stop the gospel. It's becoming more and more prevalent. Places are trying to stop the gospel from being spread. I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased to hear that in Uruguay it's a lot more open. It was very, when I was there, it was very hidden. We had to be very careful what we said. Only the Catholic Church was really the only church that could be there. And they were doing some things subversively to pr- promote the gospel with the, with the Protestant religions, the Protestant missionaries that were there. We see our world today and God sees what they are doing and all the evil that's going on. Nothing goes on in this world that God doesn't see. He's going to deal with it harshly with those who are doing what they're doing. Just read the book of Revelation and you'll see the judgment that awaits those who oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what can we what we can take from what can we take from Isaiah 49? Well, first of all, we need to trust in God's faithfulness. Throughout Isaiah 49, we can see that God is faithful to his people. He always has been, always will be. And we can too can always trust that God will be faithful to us and will always keep his promises. If you're a follower, secondly, if you're a follower of Christ, you're a child of God. You've been grafted in. He loves you deeply because of his love for you. You should sense, have this sense of security and belonging. It's like being part of a family. You know you belong there. There's security there. We belong to Christ's family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Thirdly, Jesus is the light to the nations. He has commissioned us to carry that light to the world. Everyone we encounter, we should shine that light to. Have a positive influence on their lives with Christ. See, so you and I have an opportunity to be a beacon of hope to a world that has no hope. But we have to be willing to take that beacon with us to a dark and very discouraging world. And in that process, we need to hang on to our hope. Despite the challenges and the difficulties we may face, we must hold on to the hope of God's promises. Because we know that through every trial, He has a purpose. He has a purpose for this world. He has a purpose for all of us. All of our purposes are, obviously, our purposes are to share the gospel and to praise him. That is your purpose. To worship God in everything that you do and to speak the gospel to all you encounter. That's his purpose for us.
And ultimately, it'll all turn to good. What seems like dark now, the light's going to shine and break through. We have nothing to worry about because God has this. Trust in him.